Well, open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, and we will continue our study in this second chapter where the Apostle Paul gives some very specific instruction on developing a Christian culture, a distinctively Christian culture, a, a kind of culture, a kind of lifestyle that will be completely countercultural to the world around us. That certainly was the case there on the island of Crete as Paul gave these instructions uh, to these new congregations through his, his assistant, Titus. It would have looked very, very different in these congregations with these young believers following out these instructions. would have looked very different compared to the world around, and that is the same today. We are in a Crete-like culture where our culture is filled with liars, evil beasts, and gluttons, to put it in the words of Paul. Uh, And so when we live out these commands by the grace and empowerment of God, we will live counterculturally. Now we've come quite a ways in this study of Titus 2, and we'll continue uh, this morning in looking at a new segment. But to review where we've come so far, as I said earlier, and as we've emphasized through this study, is that in Titus 2 verses 1 to 10, Paul provides... Titus with a countercultural household code, something that was common in those days to give parameters for how people were to, to, to live and conduct themselves in different households. Paul adapts that style, but he gives divinely inspired, divinely authoritative instruction for how the household of faith was to function. And we've noticed several of these categories already after emphasizing the necessity of these expectations in verse 1. Paul then addresses first the elderly men in verse 2. He then addresses the elderly women in verse 3. He then looks to the young women in verses 4 and 5. And then he addresses the young men in verses 6 to 8 before he'll address the slaves. But this This morning, we're going to look at verses 6 to 8 and Paul's instructions, his expectations to young men. Let me read what we've covered so far to the end of the text that we'll study this morning. Titus 2, beginning in verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And in the text that we'll look at this morning, likewise, Urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So our focus this morning is on those verses, those three verses that deal with young men. And Paul's expectations for young men, as you may have noticed, are expressed a little differently than he does for his expectations for the previous groups, the older men, the older women, the young women. Paul takes a slightly different approach, and in fact, just kind of as an aside, we'll get into it a little bit, this 
these verses, 6, 7, and 8, where Paul addresses the young men, they're quite complicated in the original grammar, and, and there's quite a bit of discussion as to how to understand the relationship of the various words to each other in this section. Now, that difficulty doesn't affect really the, the overall gist of the text, but there are some complexities here that for some reason are connected with his instruction to the young men. And in particular, what's going to be important to notice is that rather than providing the young men with a whole list of, of virtues that they were to pursue, in the same way that he had done with the older men, the older women, and even the younger women, Paul really emphasizes to the younger men just one primary, fundamental instruction, one expectation. We're going to, we're going to look into that, and he emphasizes here as well how Timothy, or excuse me, Titus was to instill this particular dominant virtue into the life of these young men. So as we look at the text, I want to follow Paul's logic here, and his logic can be expressed in three stages here as he, as he gives these expectations to young men. First of all, we're going to see the expectation in, the, the, in, in verse 6, in the first part of verse 7, I'll explain that. And the expectation is this, self-control. The expectation, self-control, verses 6 in the first few words of verse 7. Secondly, we're going to see the inculcation, how this expectation would be brought into the lives of these young men, and the inculcation is personal example, and that will be in in the second part of verse 7 as well as the first part of verse 8. And then finally, we will see the third stage of Paul's logic here as he gives us the motivation, which is public testimony, and that's in the very end of verse 8. The expectation, the inculcation, and the motivation behind these expectations for young men. And this is how we're going to break up the text, if you can see it on the screen here, because, as I said, the grammar in these verses is quite complicated, and and it's, it, it really doesn't, as I said, it doesn't affect the meaning, but it leads to various ways of translating this text. And so if you have different Bible translations, you put them beside each other, and there's going to be variations. But this is how I'm going to break up the text. The expectation, verse 6 and first part of verse 7, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things, comma, that leads then to the inculcation where Paul continues and now saying, showing yourself, Titus, to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. That's the, the way that Titus would pass this on in a very practical sense to the young man. And then the final part is the motivation, the third stage of the logic, and that's pretty clear there at the end of verse 8, so that the opponent will not be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Let's look at this expectation, self-control. Paul says, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. That word likewise helps us connect what Paul is doing here with the, the previous section. And on the one hand, it shows a transition. Paul is now transitioning from dealing with the young women to now dealing with a new category within the church, but it's still part of Paul's overall emphasis, that in developing the right kind of Christian 
culture. We can see that Paul is concerned about developing among these new churches the right kind of moral decorum, and he's going to give us, once again, at the end of this section, a a reason why this kind of culture, this kind of moral decorum must mark the church, and in particularly, young men. And this term, young men, is the, the male equivalent to young women that Paul the term young women that Paul used back in verse 4, except it's the, the male side of it. So it's, it's dealing with the same category of age as the young women, but now he's focused on the, the men, and it's the counterpart to the older men who are, who are addressed back in verse 2. And so who, who would these have been? And we've talked about it before, that probably the dividing line between older men and younger men uh, would be somewhere in the late 40s. Remember, they had a very short life expectancy, especially for the men in those days. So some people want to push it up into the 60s, when in reality, the life expectancy pretty much ended at 60. So older was probably more like late 40s up and, and beyond that. To the, that's the older men. Younger men would have been from the age of, of, of marriageability, which f- around that time for the, the Romans would have been around 18 from that age all the way up to the somewhere in the 40s. So if, we could roughly say that. If, if that's who you are today, if, if you can drive a car, uh, if you have a credit card, young men, uh, if you're trusted with spending, if, if you're married now all the way up to, uh, you know, younger than Rodney, then you're a young man. <laughs> then you're a young man. All right? So... I'm going to be focused mainly on you. Now, your wives are going to be elbowing you, and that's good. That's what needs to happen. The older guys are going to kind of be looking down their noses at you. That needs to happen, too. But this is addressed particularly to you, and you need to draw from this what is so very important. But as we do, I want to say this right at the very beginning, and we'll come back to it at the end again. Understand this, that what we talk about here is only possible by the grace of God. This is never just something where you just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. That's not Paul's theology. Paul's theology is very clear. He says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation and instructing us. So if the grace of God is not operating in your life, you've not come to know the grace of God, then I can say this. All I talk about today will just be a dream for you, not possible until you come to know that grace of God. Now let's dive into this verse. Paul says he urges, he says he he wants Titus to urge. He says, likewise, Titus, urge the young men. Now we haven't seen this verb in this section of chapter 2. It's interesting that when Paul gets to the young men, he uses a more stronger verb that implies authoritative persuasion. If you notice how he addresses the young men, he says in verse 2, he just says, older men are to be. In verse 3, older women likewise are to be. In verse 4, he says, encourage the young women to do these things. But when he gets to the men, Paul says to Titus, urge them. And this idea of urging is authoritative persuasion. Uh, This is not, you know kind of tiptoeing around the issues. This is direct. This is confrontational. It points out what needs to change. It's not afraid 
of the feelings, but instead cares for the truth, cares for the individual. And Paul says, Titus, admonish, exhort, authoritatively persuade. The same verb is used back in 1 verse 9 to describe what elders are to do. The elders are to be able to exhort, to authoritatively persuade in sound doctrine, as well as to refute those who contradict. It's stronger than what the older women were called to do with the younger women when they were called to encourage uh, the, the young women in their development. And overall, what we find is that this verb draws a particular sense of urgency and authority to Titus's responsibility to the young men. Now, what does, what does Paul tell Titus to authoritatively persuade in these young men? What, what was at stake here? And it's represented in that verb, to be sensible. What's interesting here is that this is the only expectation that Paul directly says, this, Titus, is the focus, to be sensible, to be sensible. Now, what does this verb mean? Now, we've come across it already numerous times in the letter to Titus. It's obviously a very important theme as Paul builds up these young congregations there who are facing such opposition from the culture the idea of to be sensible and sensibility is a very important theme. Now, the verb itself, and, and you don't need to write down the Greek here, but I want to put it up here because the, the Greek, uh, the, the etymology of this verb is very interesting. It comes from two words, one sos, which means sound or healthy, and the other one, frain, which is the Greek word for thinking. So sound or healthy and thinking. So you put those together and you get the idea of sound thinking. Likewise, Titus urged the young men to be sound thinkers. That's the idea. And as I said, this verb is, and it's in its related terms, the adjective, the adverb, so on and so on, are very important for, for Paul as he addresses Titus. We saw it back in verse 8 of chapter 1. Elders are already to be sensible, to have sound thinking. The elderly men are to show sound thinking. Older women are to influence younger women through this encouragement, which is the same verb, verse 4, of of inculcating sound thinking. And verse 12 of chapter 2, when we look at Titus chapter 2, verse 12, we see that it is the grace of God that instructs us to live soundly with our thoughts. That's what Christianity is really as a culture. It's sound thinking. One commentator describes the word with these definitions. He says, quote, a suitable restraint in every respect, a self-control which leads to a behavior appropriate to the situation and is to be seen as a positive virtue as the Christian faces the realities of life in the world. It depicts a balanced demeanor characterized by self-control, prudence, and good judgment. It stands for one of the great marks of the genuine Christian life. 
Now, when you look at what is being taught in so many circles regarding Christianity, this often is not the message. The emphasis is placed on feelings, on experiences. But as we see, as Paul instructs these congregations in a truly Christian culture, he puts the emphasis on the mind and in fact says that this is to mark all categories, all segments of the church. It is that of wisdom. I think that's the word that the Old Testament term that really summarizes what Paul is teaching here. The Old Testament term for for wisdom. It really is the summation of the book of Proverbs. So as I was thinking through this, I look back to some definitions of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. This is, this is Proverbs in the New Testament. This is Proverbs in the letter to Titus, to be sensible. And this is a great definition that is provided by Richard Mayhew in his very helpful book called Practicing the Proverbs. And I think this really summarizes, although Dr. Mayhew is addressing the, uh, the, the Hebrew term in the book of Proverbs, it also serves as a definition for what we're talking about here in Titus. He describes this wisdom this way. Wisdom reflects the intent and discipline to make godly choices in a world filled with sinful distractions and detours. Wisdom represents the culmination of knowing and understanding carried to its practical and ultimate end. Wisdom involves knowing the facts of divine revelation in Scripture as well as understanding them in the sense of comprehending God's intention that they lead to a life of redemption and practical sanctification. Wisdom then engages the human intellect and will to translate this knowledge and understanding into a pattern of godly experience as the habit of one's life. That's what Paul's getting at here, and that's the fundamental expectation that he makes of these young men. And this verb communicates the idea that it all begins in the mind. And when the mind is properly controlled, properly stewarded, it will lead to a properly controlled and properly stewarded life. That's why we tell those who are caught in various patterns of of, of bad behaviors, bad habits, and, and even sin, we say, look, you can't just try to stop doing a behavior. You've got to go to the mind. What are the thoughts that are leading to this? It's not just to, don't, don't fall into that idea that this is just conditioned behavior. There are thoughts that we have to deal with. And that's where we go to deal with the root of the problem. So in light of that, we can understand why Paul would say to Titus, look, get the young men together and tell them this one thing. They must live sensibly. They must think soundly. Paul does, does, does not regard this as just something for the gray hairs only. And in our culture, it's easy to do that, right? We think, well, someday when, when I get old, then I'll have wisdom. Wisdom is for those who have all the experience. And so the perception is that as a young man, you know, you can go and have fun 
well, it's still kind of permitted. Just, just whatever fun the world describes as fun. Just go and have it. It's your time. Sow your wild oats when you can. And there's that kind of, of idea that, that, is, it, it, that reigns within our culture and even, to some extent, even within the church. Oh, they're just young guys. Paul has no place for that. He says to Titus, listen, authoritatively persuade the young men to be sensible. There's not an exception. And we have to realize that the, 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 the problem in so many of, of the, 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 the incidences today of when we see young men going astray is that we've largely let young men off the hook. We kind of have this idea that they just need time to grow up. They're driving cars down the 405, or, well, I was going to say 405 at 80 mile an hour. You can't go 80 on the 405. On the 5 freeway, going up the grapevine, you, you will entrust them with driving a car at 80 miles an hour. You, you allow them to have a credit card and to go and spend all kinds of money, you send them off to school, and you kind of have this idea, well, they just they, they need time. And so just give them space. And Paul says, no, I'm not going to let the young man off the hook. No, the expectation is you must already be sensible. You must be sensible now. Not when you're 40 or 50 or 60, but when you're 18. We must expect that. In fact, I would say this. I'll put the young men on the spot. You look around at you and, and, and see the young men there who are in this room and look at them and say, you need to be sensible now. So cut it out. Whatever it is that's foolish, <laughs> cut it out. Not going not gonna to allow this. So stop it. Stop it. There's no reason for it. You need to live sensibly. If you're in Christ... The grace of God has come to you and has instructed you to live sensibly. Don't let men off the hook. And Paul does not just limit this to Sunday living or a certain sphere of life. He says it is to be in all things. In fact, there is a little bit of a a debate here over the grammar. As you can see in the NASB, there's a semicolon placed after sensible, and that little phrase, in all things, is attached to what follows. But I would say this, and, and various commentators are on both sides of it, but I would say this, that little phrase, in all things, is best taken together with the verb to be sensible. What Paul is doing here in this singular expectation for young men, is he's saying this, Young men are to be. Urge them to be, right now, sensible, self-controlled, beginning from the mind, right now, not just in some things, but in all things. Not just in church life, but in all attitudes, in all appetites, in all desires, in all activities. So very important, John Chrysostom, in his sermon on this, said this, For nothing is so difficult for that age, young men, as to overcome even as lawful pleasures, 
For neither the love of wealth nor the desire of glory or any other thing so much solicits the young as fleshly lust. And remember, in that day, the, the, the Christians were dwelling in a culture that was described as, as liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. They were narcissistic. They did everything for personal pleasure. And so young men grew up in that context. They believed it was just a rite of passage. And Paul says, that's got to stop. It's not that way in the church. We will train our young men to be counter-cultural. And that's, that, that, that stability of mind, that control of one's thoughts, it, it, that it is so influential, especially in young men's lives, can be seen even in our world today, even in the secular spheres. So, so I would say this, that, that even in the world outside of the church, there is this basic recognition that if a young man can get control of his thoughts leading to control of life, his outcome in life, even apart, outside of, of the gospel, will be very different from those men who at their earliest years just refuse or, or just ignore the, the imperative of, of self-control. There's an article in, in the Harvard Business Review that talks about this with respect to those who are successful in, in work. An article entitled, Making Judgment Calls, says this, Over the course of our lives, each one of us makes thousands of judgment calls. Some are trivial, such as what kind of cereal to buy, although that might, might not be so trivial. Uh, some are monumental, as, such as who to marry. Our ability to make right calls has an obvious impact on the quality of our own lives. For leaders, the significance and consequences of judgment calls are magnified exponentially because they influence the lives and livelihoods of others. In the end, it is a leader's judgment that determines an organization's success or failure. On a more personal level, it is the sum of a leader's judgment calls that will deliver the verdict on his or her career and life. Now that's written from a secular perspective. That last sentence, it is the sum of a leader's judgment calls that will deliver the verdict on his life. Now take that into the context of the church where we alone as the redeemed actually have the grace of God operating in our lives to make these changes count, to make them permanently, and to think as a young man that you would disregard this and continue on your way, having the fun of the world, sowing your wild oats, and and to think that things are going to turn out okay. They won't. They won't, and they must not. In this moral universe that God has created, there are consequences to moral choices. And Paul wants Titus to wake up the young men and to say, now is the time to get your act together. It begins in the mind. Control those thoughts. And let that then allow the control of the thoughts to control the rest of your life, the appetites, the desires, all the attitudes, 
and so forth. Now, how is this to be instructed or inculcated to the young men? They, Titus had to authoritatively persuade the men. What would be the way that he would do this? And Paul addresses that now, beginning there in verse 7 and following through to the beginning of verse 8. He says this, Show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Paul transitions now. There's a subtle shift as he says, this is what the young men are to do. But when he says, show yourself, it's not really a new imperative. Instead, that imperatival, that command feature there, show yourself, is actually expressed as the means by which Titus would urge the young men. So Titus, how are you going to urge the young men? How are you going to authoritatively persuade them of the need for sensibility? And Paul says, you're going to do this by showing yourself to be an example of good deeds. Paul says this, show yourself. Show yourself. And and that word yourself actually is, is emphatic in the original in that the verb already carried that idea in it, but Paul adds the other pronoun yourself, that reflexive pronoun, to emphasize it. He says, Titus, show you yourself. Titus, this really begins with you, with your example. They need an example. They need a concrete pattern by which they are going to get control of their thoughts and know how to control those thoughts and then know how to direct those thoughts in their ambitions and appetites of life. So what we see is this, an interesting parallel here. If you remember back to the the young women, how were they to be trained? Young women were to be trained specifically by the older women, and they were instructed to inculcate in this younger generation. Now, with respect to the young men, Paul addresses Titus directly and says, Titus, This, in particular, is your job. Now, how are you to do it? You are to show yourself as a what? As an example. Young men need heroes. Young men need patterns, models, tangible examples. And this word is a very interesting term, the term example. It it initially was used, in the history of the, the term, was used to refer to the mark that would be left by some kind of a blow. So you remember Thomas in, in uh, John chapter 21, he, he says, unless I see the imprints in Jesus' hands, that's the word for, same word as example, unless I see the marks that the, ma- the, that the nails have made. So initially the term referred to that. Over time, it then referred to the impression formed by a stamp. So they would make these stamps, carve them out of some kind of hard material and use that to press into fresh clay or wax. And the term example came to be used by the impression that was then left. And then by the time it gets to Paul's day, the word example actually relates to the thing that makes the impression the thing that leaves the marks. And so Paul says to Titus, Titus, show yourself to be that that stamp, that thing that leaves a mark. You, You have to be the one to make an impression 
on the lives of these young men. And this is something that is already implicit in the previous context as Paul addresses the older women. This is what actually the older women were to do with the younger women. Paul doesn't use the language, but the idea is the same. The older women were to leave this impression on the younger women, how they were to love their husbands, how they were to love their children, how they were to be kind, how they were to be submissive to their husbands. The older women were to be the ones to leave that impression on these younger women. Now, Paul says, now Titus, and he uses it in direct language, Titus, this is important for you. Do this work in the lives of of others. And that idea of example is, is very important. I'm going to come to this at the end and emphasize the fact that you young men need to be looking up to somebody. You, you, need to be, you need to be following somebody, not in the sense of any kind of, well, they're my rabbi or my Messiah. No, that's Jesus Christ, and we recognize that. But God has specifically ordained means. And, and all of you as young men, let me just say, 18 to 40, should have someone or a group of men in your mind, who you would say, they are my heroes. They are, they are my examples. They are the stamp that is, that is leaving an impression on my life. And, and, and they can be men who are already dead. Certainly read the, read the biographies and so on. But there's a kind of arrogance in the young men who say, well, I can't find any examples, so I'm just, you know, I'm going back to read, you know, it's, it's Martin Luther or John Calvin I can't find anybody in the church today. That's arrogance. As I said with respect to the young women, you have to find real living examples. And certainly don't just take this off social media. Social media is a horrible place to find the stamp. You need to find it in the real living people who have a heartbeat and, and, and have real circumstances where you can get together and you can look at them in the eyes and you can glean from them so much more than just reading a text. You need to find that, that stamp that's crucial to part of the, the Christian culture. Let me read a, a, a statement here uh, about something that I think we miss but is central to discipleship in the church today. One writer says this, From earlier times, the Greeks had noticed that an essential part of the growth and education process in human beings is by the process of imitation. This applied not only in developing mechanical skills, but fully as much in the development of character and in the formation of one's customs, ways, and way of life. In the process of developing by way of imitation, parents and teachers played a most important role as Example. That was one thing that was recognized in that day, and Paul grabs onto that, and he says to, to Titus, listen, Titus, you have to be this stamp that's going to leave the imprint on the lives of these young men. Let me also address the older men. Paul doesn't bring it into the context here. He places this pretty solidly in Titus's hands, but we can see the application because Titus is no longer with us today, right? I mean, that Titus is over there. So, yeah, Titus is going to get all, our Titus over here is going to get all these phone calls and text messages. Will you be my Titus, uh, Titus? Um, I'll let you deal with that. And your wife, she'll have to. But 
we, the older men, are you the kind of man that can be the Titus? Are you the kind of man that Paul would say if he was here today, you, Bob, you show yourself, you yourself, an example. The younger men are to, are, are to, are, are expected to be sensible, but you, Bob, you yourself show the example. You show the example. And the example here is, he says, is of good deeds. And here the emphasis is on the outworking of the sensibility in everyday life. Remember, we read that in the definition of wisdom, right? Wisdom is not something that remains abstract. Knowledge can. How much you know your IQ can be very abstract. There are very, there, there's a large number of people who have a high IQ but are really dumb. They don't have wisdom, But wisdom is something that goes from the knowledge, from the control of the the thoughts into actual life. And so Titus or or Paul makes the transition now and says, okay, you've got to show them how to be sensible by showing them the end result, by showing them how right thinking leads to a right example. And so Titus, show this example. And so it's interesting to note in this letter to Titus, as I said, the idea of sensibility is so often repeated, so also is the concept of good works. Paul puts those two together, and this is truly Christian culture. It is a culture that begins in the mind, a control of one's thoughts, a directedness of one's thoughts, according to the truth, according to the sound teaching. And then that then must work itself out in in real life. This is not just philosophical, it's not just abstract, it's, it's real. And so Paul, in 1 verse 16, condemns the false teachers. Why? Because they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. You see, with the false teachers, there was no sensibility. There's no control of the thoughts. You could read that in the previous verses, beginning in verse 10. No control of the thoughts. As a result, worthless. Worthless for every good deed. In 2 verse 14, however, Paul says this, that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, a people zealous for good deeds. Now, certainly, we must keep 3 verse 5 in mind when when Paul also said that that God saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to mercy. So we must keep that balance in mind. It's not just about doing good deeds and earning salvation. That has nothing to do with it. Instead, the salvation comes, the grace appears, and that grace, when it finds its resting place in the soul, it then instructs the mind, which then leads to the good deeds. So coming back to the analogy that Paul uses here, he says to Titus, the young men are to be authoritatively persuaded to be wise. You're going to have to work at this. And to do this, the means to it, the inculcation of this is going to come through you being a personal example. You have to be the stamp to leave the impression in that soft clay. And so, Titus, you're the stamp, and all those tiny markings on that stamp, they're the good deeds. 
those tangible things that people can see. Not just your abstract thoughts, but Titus, your actual lifestyle, what people observe objectively in your life. Those are the tiny markings that make that stamp beautiful. So Titus, take that stamp and press it on the young men. Now, we don't have time to go further in this text today, but I do want to come back and just draw some application to this. So I'll skip ahead here from some of this, and we'll get to it next time. But some implications that come from the expectation and the first part of the inculcation. Young men, married or single, used a better word there than I did in the previous one. Young, I don't know why I didn't use single the first time, but when I was d- dealing with the young women. But young men, married or single, recognize this. And I want you to, to take this home. Self-control is vital to Christian culture, true Christian culture. And let me say this, it is vital to your flourishing. There's nothing better that I can tell you. If you're in Christ, that within your understanding of the empowerment of the grace of God in your life operating, that this is a virtue that is vital to your flourishing. Paul Paul senses the need here to to leave off of all those other virtues, the lists that he had for older men, older women, older or younger women, and and leave them with just this one. And perhaps, like I said last time, we're blockheads, and so maybe we can only handle just one. But at the same time, this single expectation is transforming. It makes the difference. If there's one thing to work on, it's this one. A control of your thoughts, a, a, a right management of what you think, what goes, goes through your mind that then leads to an inevitable and necessary lifestyle. It is vital to your flourishing. And the sooner, young men, the sooner you can recognize this imperative and apply it by God's grace to to your life, the sooner you will experience the blessing of God in your life. On so many practical ways, but certainly in many, many spiritual ways. And you can find many, many people who on the other flip side of that will say, will tell you to your face and say, you know what, I did not get this when when I was a young guy and I paid the price. And I don't want you to pay the price. Recognize, it's vital begins with your mind. Don't just focus on those externals, on the list of do's and don'ts. It begins with what you think. Find a Titus and let your life be stamped by his. Find a Titus. And again, it doesn't need to, to, to be someone that is, you know, the most famous, uh, disciplined Christian you can find. Everybody will be knocking on Pastor John's door and saying, can you be my Titus? No, you need to find someone who who has learned this the right way and understands the role of the grace of God in all of this. And that's who you need to, to look to. 
Stop looking at what our culture elevates as the heroes. Find the, the hero who, who has the control of the thoughts that leads to wisdom in life. Failure to live under this control, as we will see when we get later on to this, into this text to the end. Failure to do this gives legitimacy to the claims of those who hate the gospel to say, see, it doesn't make any difference. You're just like us. So if you peel away the Sunday veneer, what are they going to see, young men? If the world could do that, just rip you open, look into your, into your internet searches and look into what you do on your own and your phone and all of those kinds of things, would, would you give the world legitimacy in its claims that the gospel doesn't change anything? But finally, and I want to come back to this as I emphasized at the beginning, only the grace of God can enable this in your life. Now, this is, you're never too young to begin. You're never too old to implement this, but recognize this. You might look at your life and say, you don't know what I'm into. You don't know the kind of thoughts in my mind. You don't know how dark they are, how horrible but I can say, with God, all things are possible. And the power of God's grace is something that will overcome even the darkest. This is where you need to go. This is where it begins. The grace of God. Flee to that grace. Let me read again verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny godliness, ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly. Go to that grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a wonderful morning and a blessing it is just to be here and to be recipients of, of all of your goodness through your word, through the fellowship, with your saints, through the wonderful truths that we have reminded uh, to us. Father, we especially think right now of the young men in our midst and the great challenges that they have in this world from their own flesh and certainly from the enemy of their souls. I do pray you would take this word from Titus and impress it upon them deeply. And may this be a helpful turning point, a stepping stone or a, an encouragement to continue in what they may already be doing. But use it, Father, for your glory's sake, for the good of their own souls and also for the good of those around them. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.